Wonderful. Well, I'm so glad to be able to speak to you this morning on Easter Sunday. Youth Church, you uh, are dismissed. Our grades 6 to 8. Let me uh, read some scripture to you that is uh, very definitely connected to Easter Sunday. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read a couple of verses from the beginning of the chapter and then a few from the end. It says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. And then in verse 57, it says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is, uh, is a celebration passage, and can you hear me feeding back slightly? I don't know. Do you want me to use the other microphone? I can. Does that help? Okay, let me see if this, uh, if this is any better. Is this good? Oh, there we go. Sound like a radio DJ now. Let me just uh, disconnect myself here. Okay, so I don't normally do this in front of everybody. It feels kind of awkward. There we go. So this passage in 1 Corinthians 15 is, is a celebration of everything to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as Christians, the resurrection of Jesus Christ really is what our faith stands upon. Because you can look back in history and you can see that a man called Jesus Christ lived... And he uh, lived at the time period that Christians believe. And then you can also see that he died. See, is, uh, the history books declare that. In fact, we were talking this morning. There was an article in The Guardian from Britain that basically it, it's now seen as complete lunacy to say that Jesus didn't actually exist. So we know that Jesus lived. And you can see in history that he died. And you can see then that there's this incredible move of Christianity that emerges from the area at that time where hundreds and thousands of people uh, joined this movement called Christianity. In the the early times, it was called the way, the, the people of the way. And there was a revolt against these people, these Christians, and a tremendous revolt. They were tortured, they were murdered, they were, uh, they were dipped in oil and tar and set alight, literally as human candles. Uh, you, you know, you're talking about tremendous persecution against the Christian church. And you can see evidence of that even today that Christians, even last week we saw that Christians are still being persecuted. Why is that? Why is it that Christians have been historically persecuted more than any other religion? Why why is that? It all hinges on this passage, on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Christians declare that Jesus Christ not only died, but rose again. That he rose from death to life. And so, I want to just pull this apart a little bit. But I don't want to make it just a history or theological 
lesson because what Paul is saying here is he recognizes at the beginning of the passage that he was raised on the third day, it says in verse 4, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. But then at the end of the passage he says, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through Jesus Christ. Therefore, therefore, see this word therefore is really important. He's saying, because of all that I have just written, because of the resurrection, therefore there's a certain way in which we as Christians must live. So for those of you who perhaps wouldn't align yourself with Christianity, or maybe you would call yourself a Christian, but you know, deep down inside you know that probably you're not really living that life that you know a Christian should live, then, then this is what I want to do for you today. I want to declare and show you how the resurrection is actually not just something to be celebrated on Easter Sunday or even something that we think about when we sing the songs, but the resurrection is a daily call. It's a lifestyle. It's a way to live. So if I was to, in a very non-creepy way, follow you into your life, Does the resurrection actually show itself, Christians, in your day-to-day life on Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday? Could I look at your marriage and see that the resurrection is is shown through your marriage? That the truth of the resurrection influences your parenting? That the truth of the resurrection uh, kind of dictates how you treat your neighbor? The truth of the resurrection, the way that you students, the way that you study, the way that you are a, uh, a member of the workforce or a business owner, does the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually affect and influence that? And for those perhaps that are a little more skeptical, skeptical of Christianity, as I go through this message, I want you to think to yourself, is what Pastor Glenn describing as the ideal life actually shown in my life? So not only is it Christians, is there a challenge, but there's also a challenge for everyone in the room. Is your life actually the way in which somehow we've been designed to live it? See, this is the beauty of me as a, as a pastor or a preacher. I can preach history, I can preach uh, apologetics, philosophy, logic, and if you come week in, week out to the church, you will hear me using all sorts of different Uh, modern cultural examples, I can do all that, but at the end of the day, what I know without a shadow of a doubt is that in each and every one of us, there's the sense that we know that there's something more, not just something more out there, a divine, but just that our lives actually give illustration that we know that there's, there's more than what we have right now. And it shows itself in really obvious ways, the constant pursuit that we have in life, the need for more popularity or possessions or position or, you know, that we just need more, we need more, we need more. And and so the Bible actually says that there's a kind of a divine fingerprint, if you like, that, that there's just something that we know as humans, that there is something more than just what we touch and feel. We, we can sense it and we're trying to find answers to that. But when we're just by ourselves, listen, in the real quiet of the night and it's just you and your thoughts and you've switched off all your technology and all the distractions deep down inside you know what's really going on and you know that the technology and the 
the, the family or the work, as beautiful as all this wonderful stuff is, it kind of fails and falls short because we just are always looking for more. So the first thing that Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians in, in verse 58, in the therefore, he says, My beloved brothers, Christians, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, he says, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So the first thing that Paul says, that the resurrection, the empty tomb, shows and tells us about Christianity is that we as Christians should be unshakable. We should be unmovable. We should just be so solid. We should have a stability in our life that goes beyond any circumstance that we might feel, that there is an unshakability in a very much shaking world. This week, you turn on the TV, you see a world shaking. Maybe the world is shaking in your life. Maybe your family is shaking, your financial situation, your workplace, your business, or your health, whatever it might be, that these circumstances create this shaking and difficulties in relationship, disappointment, temptation. So Paul is saying, because of the resurrection, we as Christians should be unshakable. There should be a stability that is supernatural. And friends who may be visiting today, do you have that stability? Do you have that sense of unshakability? That you unshaking actually shakes a shaking world. That people look at you and go, there is a peace there is a sense of calmness. There is a, there's, a, there's a heart. There's, a, there's something underlying that person's life that is so much deeper than you will find in the self-help section of chapters. There's so much deeper than, than what seems to be visible, that there's a stability. Do you have that? So how does Jesus rising again cause this stability? How is it that as Christians we can look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the empty tomb, and we can declare, because of that empty tomb, I can have a stability in my life? What's the connection? Well, the first thing is, the empty tomb is a reminder that God is faithful. God is faithful. You see, everything from the Bible, from the first book throughout, this is not a life's instruction book. This is not a manual for life. There's lots of stuff in here that is very helpful to life, but ultimately this is a a storybook. It's a rescue mission. It's from the very first pages, it's God on a rescue mission to bring us back to the design that we were created for. There's that ache that we have that I described at the beginning. It's a rescue mission and all the way through, God was faithful to his promise and he's faithful to his promise now. I'm 44 years old. I have four children. My eldest is 23. My youngest is 12. And I can say without a shadow of a doubt, as I look through my life, and I haven't been a Christian my whole life, but I can see through my Christian life that there has been times when God has shown himself so faithful to me and my family. And we have been through some stuff. You're like, well, maybe you just haven't been through what I've been through. And you're probably right. But we've been through our stuff. I say this in front of my wife, and I say it because I know she will agree. We've been married for, this is our 24th year? 23, 24. 24th year married. You don't get, you're not married 24 years without there being some times when you're like, okay, I need help here. 
definitely you talk to Sarah, she's going to say, yeah, I need a lot of help. There was a lot of prayers all the way through. As somebody said, we've been married for 24 years, but, and, and 12 of those were happy. You know? Because the, the life is tough. It's challenging. And God is faithful. He's faithful in an unfaithful world. The world will let you down. One of my favorite things that I've seen happen over the last few years with the emergence of the, of the internet more and more over the last 20 years is that people who are in charge of marketing in big corporations think it's a good idea to throw out questionnaires and surveys to the interwebs asking them for a, a vote on something that is, that is kind of uh, something that's happening in their company. So, for example, the New York Mets decided about nine years ago that they would put it out for vote as to what should be their eighth inning song to play uh, for the New York Mets. What they didn't count on is that the whole of the world who are on the Internet can see this vote And so the number one song was not Living on a Prayer or anything kind of epic and anthem-like. It was Rick Astley's Never Gonna Give You Up. And so they played Rick Astley. And for those of you who are 80s kids, you might remember Rick Astley, Never Gonna Give You Up. They played it in the eighth inning of the New York Mets to boos and chants from the crowd. I love that. I think it's brilliant. More recently, they had a vote. Apparently, Greenpeace had a vote for a very special whale. And this whale ended up getting called Mr. Splashy Pants. You see, you can't rely on the world. And then perhaps my most favorite one, this happened last year, where there was a very important ship vessel that was a, a research vessel that was going to get, get sent to uh, North Pole. Very serious, very important research, multi-hundreds of millions of pounds was spent on this boat. And so they decided to ask the British public, of which I have a special affinity, what should we call this important research vessel? And the number one name that came out was Boaty McBoatface. Moments like this just makes me proud to be British. Boaty McBoatface. And they decided not to call it Boaty McBoatface to large 70 million groans from Britain. You can't trust people. You can't. We live in an unfaithful world. We live in a world that lets us down. And even those that are closest to us, our friends, our family, and our colleagues, they, they let us down. Maybe they've been unfaithful to you. Maybe your dreams have failed. Maybe the things that you were really sure about just didn't happen. The world fails. And then throughout it all, the tomb shows us that God was faithful because that which God declared from the beginning, he was sure to bring about. And God is faithful in those lives, Paul says here, who declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. See, there is one who will never fail you, regardless of your circumstances, regardless of how shakable the world is. He will never fail you. Jesus is faithful to everything he promised. And there are many people in this room who would declare very loudly and vigorously that to be the case. See, the empty tomb is evidence of his faithfulness. Secondly, the empty tomb is also a reminder that God has incredible power. Not only is he faithful, but he also shows that he is able to follow through with everything that he promised. Have you ever made a promise that you have not followed through with? 
as parents, we kind of put our head down because if we're all truthful, then we know there will be many times we've said, we're going to do this, and then it doesn't work out. Well, God said from the beginning, this is what I'm going to do. Hundreds of years before, hundreds of years before, they were declaring that Jesus Christ would come, that he would die, and that he would rise again. Have you ever made a promise that you just weren't able to deliver on? You see, God showed that he has incredible power by beating death in Jesus Christ, his son. You see, God delivers on his promises. So those of you who are perhaps more skeptical will understandably say, yeah, but well, is, where's the evidence? Where's the evidence to show that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? And you see, what we read right at the beginning in, in chapter 15 was Paul giving some indication of the, the time in which he lived. He said, he said these things. He said, listen, he said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scriptures. He's saying this was predicted hundreds of years before. And then he said that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scriptures. Again, that was predicted. And then he says, this is where the evidence starts, and that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. I can guarantee you it was in the interests of the government and the leadership of the time to produce a body, to show that that which was being declared, that Jesus was alive, was, was not true. But there was no body to be found. As Christians, we believe that's because he rose from the dead. There was no body because he went back to heaven. So you're going, yeah, right. Okay, come on. But you need to understand not just Jesus raising from the dead. You need to understand about the response from the people. We have this kind of, this idea that people who go before us are somehow not as intelligent as us. C.S. Lewis writes about it at great length. He, he talks about it. It's just this kind of arrogance that we think that the older generation are a bit thick. So some of those of you who are younger, you're looking at me going, mm, probably not as enlightened as me. You know, like the t-shirt says, I'm not young enough to know everything. That's what, you know, and you know what? All you're doing is exactly what we tend to do when we get a bit older, we look at the next generation, if we're not careful, is this arrogance and it's a lie that those that are older somehow don't know as much as us. Now, about certain things, that's true. It's always fun giving an iPad or a, or a, you know, a phone to somebody who, you know, I'm thinking about my, my mum-in-law, for example, you know, or my, you know, or my mum. She struggles with that, and that's fine. There's a lack of kind of experience with these. But, but the intelligence, the understanding is still there, obviously. But you extrapolate that all the way back, generation upon generation, hundreds and thousands of years. You think that people, we think that people, thousands of years ago, were really, really uncivilized. But then you need to look at the Egyptians. We still can't figure out how they managed to do that. You look at, you go back, actually there's tremendous intelligence. In fact, more than we show, some historians would say, that we do now. Because we haven't been dulled. We've been dulled in our culture. So why am I saying all that? You're talking about smart, logical, uh, important people desperate to show proof that Jesus died. But what we've got here is that hundreds of people declaring that they've seen Jesus. So all these eyewitnesses saw Jesus. Yeah, but you know, they're uncultured. No, you can't say that. It's untrue. It's not fair. 
But then there's further evidence. Because many of these people died horrible deaths on the basis of their belief. Would you? Would you be willing to be crucified upside down for a lie? Would you be willing to go and and experience all the apostles died horrible deaths? Many, many Christians died horrible deaths. Would you do that on the basis of something you just made up, knowing that there's a body hidden somewhere? You see, the evidence is there. And people far more intelligent and smarter than me have tried to disprove this and actually come to the conclusion that it's true. We watched the video of the guy who uh, is one of the top genetic scientists, very, very atheist, against Christianity. And then he met a lovely little old lady who was coming to the end of her life, and she gripped his arm. It's on the Alpha video. Gripped his arm and said, who do you put your faith in, or words to that effect? And it shook him. So he started reading the Bible, looking for evidence that he was a hardened scientist atheist. He's in charge of the CERN project, the the particle transfer spinny thing. You can watch it. I'm not a scientist. I don't know. But I know he's one of the top scientists in the world. He started reading the Bible, looking for evidence that this thing wasn't true. And guess what? Now he's a Christian and now he's on the Alpha video. Oh, no, but he's not as smart as me. I'll leave you with that. Let's just consider that maybe, maybe that God is powerful to follow through. And the same resurrection power, the Bible says, lives in us Christians, in you and me. That same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives in us. So if you are feeling weak this morning, then there is an answer to that. The power of Jesus Christ. If you are feeling powerless or that life is too big, you're feeling lonely or lost and confused or at the end of your tether, you don't know which way to go. You see, without Jesus, you're stuck. But with Jesus, you have something that is far deeper and more profound and magnificent and beautiful than you will ever find in this world. See, the empty tomb is also a reminder that God is willing. It's a challenge with the handheld mic. God is willing. You see, he's faithful, he's powerful, he's willing. And we ought to be amazed at God's willingness to love us. I spent a lot of time last week, and you can listen to it online, talking about why Jesus had to die. Why didn't God just, he was so powerful, why did he just forgive everybody? What kind of God kills his own son? What's that all about? You need to listen to the message. But the underlying message throughout that last week's sermon is this, is that God loves us so much that he gave me, and I know who I am, gave me the ultimate gift in his son dying. He was willing and he was enthusiastic to love me. He's faithful. He's powerful. He's willing. And that makes me unshakable. That makes me stable because the world can throw whatever it wants to throw at me and I can stay strong and I can stay unshakable. Is that a fight sometimes? Absolutely. It's hard work. But I have something. And many others in this room have something which they stand and Christians. We need to remember the reason we celebrate the resurrection today and every day is because God was willing to love you.
So much so that Jesus, God-man, died on the cross for you. I'd love to go into great depth again about the why. Please listen to last week's message. But God is faithful, he's powerful, he's willing. And then this, Paul carries on, he says, because of that, he says, you're always abounding in the work of the Lord. This word abounding literally means enthusiastic, hopeful, motivated, driven, and courageous. You see, because Jesus Christ died and rose again, him rising again proved everything that he said was true, and we believe that he rose again. Because of that, we can be stable, we can be strong, we can be unshakable. Why? Because God is faithful, he follows through with power, and he is willing. And this results in something amazing happening in the Christian life, as described by this word abounding. The abounding means I can live life and life to the full in full energy because of the resurrection, the power of God living in me. You see, I can have a deep, we as Christians can have a deep belief that life is possible and I don't have to be afraid. Where do you get that in this world? Please tell me where you can buy that or stretch it out in a yoga class. Or bicep curl it in, in a gym. Or cash it in, in a TFSA. Where do you get that abounding? Can you marry that? Because I promise you, she or he will disappoint you. If they are the answer to your needs, at some point they're going to let you down. It's called marriage. But you see, if you have something strong outside of you, two people making much of Jesus coming together, then you've got strength. Where do you get this abounding? Can you business it in? Can you buy it in? Can you read it in? Can you deep breathe it in? People have been trying for thousands, for millennia. And Paul says you can be abounding because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because God is willing, God is faithful, God is powerful. You can abound. You can believe that the addicted can be delivered. You can believe that the rebellious can come back. You can believe that the broken can be healed. You can believe that the fearful can find courage. You can believe that the depressed can find joy again. You can live life with hope. Because when you strip away this world and you get very down to the core and you take away politics and social uh, justice and money and, and power and you take it all away, what you get to is a lack of hope. And what we do is we put our hope in material things and in things that we think we can come to and, and it fails. See, God does not fail when you anchor your life in something that's outside of you and more powerful than you. See, I believe in the power of what happened in the empty tomb because I don't want to just scrape by. You can have abundant joy and joy more abundantly. You can have peace and peace more abundantly. You can have courage and courage more abundantly. You can, you can have love and love more abundantly. Strength and strength more abundantly. Isn't that good news? Why would you walk away from that thinking that you're going to find it somewhere else? Because we can move on from disappointment. We can move on from pettiness and we can move on from our hurt and our disappointment and our bitterness. I have, uh, like I said, I have four children and, and uh, my eldest is, uh, she left about 18 months ago and 
And my, my next one is in Britain right now. She's, uh, she's at Cape and Ray. And I have two boys at home. <sighs> boys are very different than girls in more ways than one. And having parented girls and boys, boys are very physical. You know, with the girls, you need a really great spiritual counselor for, for me, for a dad, because they just keep me in a perpetual state of panic. Because that's what daughters are. I love them, but man, they just cause me sleepless nights. But with a boy, you just need a really good cup. You just need to be able to protect yourself really well. Because as they get bigger, they, they wrestle. And they, like yesterday, Luke was enacting a certain play in a rugby game that he had with Jack. He was rucking over Jack in our front room on our couch. And these two boys are big, and the house is starting to get, you know, creak. But I remember when they were small. I I remember that now everything tends to end in pain, and then as good boys do, they just laugh at one another, no matter how hard they are hurt. It's just, (laughs) see, you chopped your finger off. Well, you know, because that's what boys do. It's it's kind of weird. But when they were young, everything was a competition. I want to sit in the front. It's my turn. They were just moaning over the most petty of things. I want to sit in the front. It's my turn. In Britain, you'd say, Bagsy the front. What is it? Shotgun here, right? Shotgun. Shotgun the front. It's my turn. Well, why don't one of you sit in the front on the way there, and the other one can sit at the back on the way back, and then it's fine. But that's not good enough. There's tears, and there's tantrums. You know, like, you know, even, like, this was just happening last week, wasn't it, Luke? It's 18. It's tears and tantrums, and you're like, why? What? It's just as pathetic. And then it gets even worse. I remember when we got into an elevator, they used to fight over who could press the button. Do you remember that? Yeah, you still do that. It's like, I want to press the button. No, I want to press the button. Ah! They were crying. and all, You know, it was the pressing the button or crossing the intersection. They had to take it in turns. It's exhausting as a parent. Like, get over it. There's more important things in the world to be you know, disappointed and bitter and upset about. And then we grow up and we just replace elevator buttons and intersection buttons and shotgun in the front of the car with other stuff. And we get upset and disappointed and bitter and it's petty. And it's like, man, we need to move on. See, you can abound in life and move on. You can move on. We can expect good things to happen. And then finally, Paul says this. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Everything you do, he says, is not a waste of time when it's held by God. See, think of all the things that have happened up to this moment of resurrection. All the, all the things that God had put into place for the resurrection and the death and res- rising of Christ to happen again. Think of all those wonderful things that have happened. God is the master at taking the smallest detail and turning it into his story. And he does exactly the same. He says, Paul says, your life is not in vain. Even the smallest of details can work towards the story of God. And that gives you tremendous security to be able to... Relax. You can look at your children and you can go, man, I'm, I'm worried. This is hard. I'm not sure what this world is going to be like for them as they grow up. But I believe in a God which says that life is not in vain. You can look at your own life in your own situation and your own struggles and you can say, I don't understand why this is happening. 
But I know with confidence, not in vain, because God has a bigger story than I have. So it moves away from that which we can hold and see and touch and puts it into the hands of somebody who sees so much more than we. The smallest of detail can change a story. I've mentioned already that um, I, I enjoy some of the stories that come out of Britain, like Boaty McBoatface. One that I heard recently kind of just takes... Takes the biscuit. Is that a Canadian term? Takes the biscuit? No. Pete knows what I mean, don't you, Pete? It wins. I don't know why take the biscuit means wins, but... Um, There was something that came up into the House of Lords um, as they were discussing the whole whether or not Britain should uh, leave Europe, which is kind of an interesting story in itself, by the way, because the Brits have never considered themselves European. Like, trust me, there's Europe and then there's Britain. And that's just the way we, we kind of thought. It's, we're very like, no, it's the UK. You don't call a British person European. It doesn't go down well with most Brits. Um, but, you know, we're part of the European Union. And so there was, as you heard, the whole Brexit thing. And as the discussion of Brexit happened, something very important came up into the House of Lords because a certain elderly lord uh, was representing a large group of construction companies. And he wanted to make sure we came out of Europe because there's this law that has been brought in from Europe that affects the construction companies. And the law is, surrounds the, um, the great crested newt. Bear with me. The great crested newt is a protected newt. And if one of these newts are found on land in Britain, it is, there's no construction allowed on that whole piece of land. Because they're protected. So this Lord was saying this is ridiculous because this is what was happening and I think this is wonderful. Conservation and environmental groups got wind of this. And they were breeding great crested newts. And they were hearing about where building and construction was happening and they just happened to come along going and drop a few. And then, you know, they they just made sure that they were found. Because as soon as one newt was found, then all the bulldozers and everything had to stop work. And then that beautiful, swift, political, governmental mechanism started. Where they had to prove that they were not breeding. And it basically brought the whole construction thing to a halt. Isn't that wonderful? That something as small as that can have such a great impact I love that. So much so, I actually came up to the House of Lords. I don't know what the end result was. Well, I guess the end result was Brexit, so I guess he won. The great crested newts are now... Let's move on. I don't know. For those of you, sorry if you've offended those newt lovers in the room, but something so small can have such a profound effect. Maybe something really small in your life had such a profound effect that's holding you back. Other people kind of go, well, you just need to move on. See, Paul says that there is nothing in your life that is for vain, that God cannot use, cannot transform, cannot change. And Christians, we need to live in the light of that, that God is faithful. He is powerful, and the resurrection proves it. That God is willing to love somebody just like you and me. That the result of that is that we can be abounding in our life and know that everything that we do has a story connected to it. When Jesus was meeting Martha, he said this to Martha. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He brought life and resurrection together. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he said this to Martha. Listen, do you believe this? 
Christians, do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ so much so that it affects your everyday life? For those of you who are just thinking through Christianity, what do you put your belief in? Maybe you're saying, I don't know if I've ever believed this. I don't have that kind of stability. I don't have that kind of faith. It's okay for you. You know, I, my life is just a complete mess. Or, I'm, or you know what? I've got it all under control, Glenn. I, I, I'm my education, my business, my family. I can do this. I can, I can push through. And, but deep down inside, we know that if any one of those things fails, we shake. And you don't have that kind of hope. Jesus came to give you life. And if we come to him and cry out in humble need of him and and we recognize that we need his help and even today you can pray and declare he is faithful, he will not turn you away. He's powerful. He can transform your heart. And he is willing. He's willing to do it this morning. He said, those of you who come, I will not turn away. See, that is why Easter is good news. I love chocolate, but it's way more than chocolate. God is faithful. God is powerful. God is willing. He gives us abundant life, and he says your whole life is a story, and there's hope in that. Let's pray. Dear God, I I, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, that that I can put my faith and hope in something so significant and so powerful. God, I thank you for the accusation that Christians often get that, well, you're just weak. And I would wholeheartedly agree. God, I I can't do this life by myself. I can't be the dad I want to be. I can't be the husband I want to be. I can't be the employer or pastor I want to be. I need your help. I am weak, Lord. But Jesus, I thank you that your promise is power and it is strength and it is hope and it is story that you are faithful, you are powerful and Lord, you are willing to die so that I did not have to take that punishment for my sins You are willing, Lord. Thank you for the story, the beautiful story of Easter. And my prayer, Lord, for every person in this room, my prayer is that, God, that we would leave this place living out the resurrection. Every day, not just today, but every day, Lord, we can thank you for all the promises that Easter reminds us of. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to